listen to this portion of God's word. Be very careful of how you live, not as unwise but as wise. Making the most in every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The word of the Lord. Twice I'm using notes and these guys memorized. Well done, guys. Um, so this morning we get to welcome uh, Matthew Hoskinson to the stage. Um, Matthew is a t-ball coach, a marathon runner, and a published author. He's the son of an American soldier and a Korean immigrant, and he grew up in Detroit and is still infected with a love for all things Michigan. Ross isn't here today, is he, to hear that? Um, I don't know if I'm supposed to say go blue in parentheses. But. Uh, he and his wife, Kimberly, married in 2000 and moved to Manhattan in 2010, and I found out this morning they have five children and live on Roosevelt Island, which anybody that has kids in the city is, knows that's uh, an accomplishment in itself. Uh, the oldest is a sophomore at El Eleanor Roosevelt High School, and the other four are students at the Geneva School. For the past eight years, he's pastored at First Baptist at 79th and Broadway, where he finished up his tenure in May. And I understand that he just got back from six weeks on the road traveling the country with his family. So he should be well-rested, uh, tanned, and, and excited to be here this morning. Matt, thanks for coming. The, the title of the sermon was given to me by James. And you might think... It might have taken leave boldly. It might have taken me to leave boldly, like to say, "I'm going to leave New York for six weeks, like without a job, and actually come back and expect that this is all going to work." So, but this is not a testimony sermon. I'm not just going to be giving a, like a, a rambling memoir. Um, it, it, it's a real delight to be with you. Um, I've known of Trinity for years. I've actually been in this space before, not for a Sunday worship service, but for other events. Um, I'm friends with many Trinity members and with pastors, uh, and James and I, when we were talking back in April or May, and I said, um, hey, you know, if you need any help, if you're going to be gone any Sundays, I'd be happy to step in for you. And he said, hey, I've got a Sunday, I'm going to be away, would you, would you take it? I'm like, sure, that, that sounds great. Um, so he asked me if I would speak on this topic from this passage, Ephesians uh, 5, 15 through 17. And guys, great job, and I did not memorize my sermon. So props to you two. Uh, the passage that we're looking at today presents us, or maybe I should say it uncovers for us a paradox. That is, there is this tension in our minds between two things that at least seem like, if not actually are, a contradiction. The paradox I'm speaking of in this passage is the paradox between wisdom and courage. Now, you know what those words mean. Both of those, wisdom and courage, are uh, virtues, right? Character traits. And everybody acknowledges that they are good things, right? You do not need to be a follower of Jesus to believe that one ought to live a wise and courageous life. Uh, in fact, in the last uh, 
15 hours or so since Senator McCain passed away, reading the tributes to him, so much was made and ought to be made about his wisdom and his courage. Everyone agrees that these are virtues that ought to be pursued, and yet I say that there is a paradox in our minds with respect to them. We'll get to that paradox in a moment. Let me show you first where wisdom and courage show up in this passage. I'm not making up that wisdom and courage appear here. Uh, It's pretty obvious where wisdom is. Verse 15, Paul just comes right out and says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. There you go. There's wisdom. Now, whole books are written about what the scripture teaches with respect to wisdom. And at minimum, what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 5 uh, to these believers at the church in Ephesus is everything you learned back there in the Hebrew Bible about wisdom, right? Let me make it more specific. Everything you learned back there in Proverbs still applies on this side of, of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Like, you can't just, like, chuck the Old Testament because now Jesus has risen from the dead. In fact... The Hebrew scriptures have important words for us, even here on this side of the resurrection. And one in particular is the word wisdom. Now, that's an interesting word. In the Hebrew, the word hakmah, wisdom, is a word that just means skill. So you might find the word being used in the Old Testament to speak of a skillful craftsman. Right? But, but it would say, like it might tr- be translate, a wise craftsman. That's not saying it's a craftsman with a long white beard and like all these pithy aphorisms to dispense. It just means he's good at his job. Or in the Old Testament, musicians are described as wise. Not because of some incredible mental ability, but because they're really skillful. Like the people who served us this morning wise musicians, able to carry us into the presence of God on the wings of song. So wise just means skillful. And yet, when it comes to living, the word wise means that you know how to live. You're skillful at navigating life. Just like a pianist is skillful at navigating the keys and knowing, hearing, sensing the chord progression and and what rhythm would work. So in life, when we're faced with complexities and challenges, we know how to navigate. We're wise. Not necessarily smart, but wise, skillful. So Paul says all of that from Proverbs and For that matter, the rest of the wisdom literature, Job and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon and a number of the Psalms, the wisdom Psalms, all of those things apply to us here on this side of the resurrection. In fact, you could go so far as to say that Paul is telling us that living wisely is, in fact, the right response to the death and resurrection of Christ. It's not just that these things are still in force on this side of the gospel, But precisely because of the gospel, we ought to live that way now. Consider how the book is laid out. Ephesians is a pretty short letter. There's only six chapters in it. Many of you, I'm sure, have read it multiple times. You may have even heard sermon series on the book. The first three chapters are intently theological. I mean, it's it's like sitting in a really, really deep Sunday school class. 
Because for three chapters, Paul is detailing for us with remarkable clarity and depth what God has done for people in Christ, in the Messiah, in Jesus. But then it's like you get to chapter 4, verse 1, and he like makes almost a complete turn to the very, very practical. It's as if he's saying, here's all that God has done for you in Christ. Now, here's how you are to live. That's the rest of the book. And I mean, some of the verses that you memorized years ago, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What is that? That is Ephesians 4.32. This is how you live in light of God's work for you, in light of the theology. And in that second section of the book, five times Paul uses a verb that the NIV and our verse translates live, but it literally is the word walk. Walk as wise. Now, Paul is not concerned with how you step, you know, your left and then your right. That's not his point when he says walk. But most of us walk somewhere every day, right? You walked to get here. Why does he use the word walk walk to describe live? Because he's saying your everyday life should be characterized by certain things. And those five things in chapters 4 and 5 are listed here on the screen for you. He first says walk worthy of this calling. Here's this high calling from God. All this great stuff he's done for you in Jesus by the Spirit. Therefore, he says, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Live up to it. For years, I was a youth pastor in South Carolina. And if you know anything about the U.S. military, you know that South Carolina is home to two different training bases for the military. There's Fort Jackson in Columbia for the Army. And there's Paris Island for the Marines uh, at the coast near Charleston. And uh, as a youth pastor, a number of our teams would graduate and join the Army, join the Marines, either in like full-time or, or as a reservist. And I had the privilege of going down and seeing their graduations. The Marine graduations at Paris Island were amazing. Scary. I'm not a Marine. But amazing. They put themselves through what they call the crucible. And sometimes I wonder if literally it is like someone pounding them, you know, with marble on stone, like it's, it's crazy. But when they are done and they get to that graduation ceremony and, and the commanding officer says, you are now Marines. And a hoo-ah goes up. That gives you chills, right? I mean, that's what they worked for. It's what they wanted. And now they have this high calling of being a Marine, right? And now the challenge is live like a Marine. And goodness, you talk to an 80-year-old in a nursing home who served in the Marines decades ago, and you bring up the word Marine, and I mean, there's a fire in their eye. I am a Marine. I'll, I'll die a Marine. I'm not a soldier. I was corrected on that early on. Don't call a Marine a soldier. You don't, when you're, when you're calling us to be a Marine, you don't live like anyone else, and that's what the second walk is there. You have this calling, so chapter 4, 17, verse 17 says, 
don't live like everyone else. If you're a Marine, you live like a Marine. You've been called by God in Christ. Don't live like the rest of society. So does that mean like, okay, um, Christians should wear frumpy clothes and listen to music only produced in the 1950s and vote for one particular political party? Like that, or maybe form our own political party. No. What does it mean to walk in a different way, but that third walk, walk in the way of love, that's what's truly different about the life that we're called to live. Because God has turned the lights on. We see, we understand what is going on in this world. We understand what God is doing in this world. And so we walk not with disdain for other people, but with love for other people. Our heart goes out to them. So we walk as children of light because we're in the light. And the fifth and final one is this one in our passage. All of this is the path of wisdom. Skillfully navigating our life such that we are walking worthily of the call we have in Christ and that we follow Christ's path of love. So there's wisdom. And he simply just says, live as the wise. He doesn't go into quote a thousand and one Proverbs. But he does give one description of what the wise life looks like back in verse 15. The one description he gives of how to live as the wise is, verse 16, making the most of every opportunity. How do we live as wise? You do it by making the most of every opportunity. And friends, here's where that second virtue comes up. Courage. Courage. The phrase translated here in the NIV, making the most of every opportunity, literally reads, redeeming the time. Buying it back. Now he's not saying, you know, like Dumbledore said to Hermione, you know, turn this little necklace around three times and you can get your time back and be in two places at once. That would be awesome. And what would a sermon be without a Harry Potter reference? What he's saying is, you're investing your time. Everyone gets the same amount every day. And you're investing it. Make sure you get a good return on that investment. You only have so many hours. What are you getting back? So Paul is telling us, make sure you're investing your time in something that will get a big payoff. Which is why the NIV translates this really well. Make the most of every opportunity. And this, friends, is where the matter of courage comes up and, frankly, our paradox. If we're going to redeem the time, if we're going to invest our hours, if we're going to make the most of every opportunity, we're entering right into uh, uh, a discussion of how much courage are we willing to live with. Because to redeem the time, to make the most of every opportunity requires an incredible amount of courage. Why do I say that? I say it because at the beginning of an opportunity, you don't know what the payoff will be. Imagine an investor who had a thousand shares of Apple stock. You're like, I've, I've imagined that a few times. Like, <laughs> I'm happy to be me, right? 
Now imagine that investor with a thousand shares of Apple stock in 1997 when Apple was about to go under and the shares were around a dollar. And they said, you know what? I've had enough. PCs rule the world. Apple is dead. I'm going to get out while I can. I don't know anyone who did that. If that's one of you. Um, <laughs> my condolences, I guess. I don't know. You don't, you don't know at the time of decision how that decision is going to turn out. Let, let's put it back where we all live, okay? Uh, while we were on our break, our family uh, had a lot of hours in the car together. I mean, a lot. We put 5,000 miles on our SUV. So it was, it was, uh, was there's a lot of bonding time. We do the bonding, right? Um, we, and, and I mean, we were, and we played a lot of games together. One of the ones we got into is Yahtzee. Remember Yahtzee? You roll five dice. Uh, try to get five of the same or three of a kind, four of a kind, whatever. Except, you know, it's 2018, so we're all on our phones playing Yahtzee with each other. Um, I, I, was, I was driving. I, I wasn't playing, uh, just, just to be clear. But, you know, you, you, you roll that first one, and you get three threes. You've already used your threes, but you need a Yahtzee. So you say, oh, should I go for the Yahtzee? Or should I try for something else, right? You don't know before the second and third rolls whether it's going to come out as a Yahtzee. And it might not work out. But if you take the opportunity and give it a shot, you might end up with zero. See, friends, that's why I say this phrase, the one phrase that describes how to live wisely is, in fact... An expression of courage. And here's the tension. Because the, the tension emerges between wisdom and courage because we tend to think of wisdom as playing it safe. Waiting until all of the data emerge so that we can form a really solid objective opinion about what would be best. To us, wisdom is carefulness. Wisdom is don't jump in with both feet, but stick a toe in to make sure the water is right. And see, friends, this is where we, we set up in our minds this paradox between wisdom and courage. Actually, we don't say it that way, though. You know how we say it? And I'm talking, if, if you're not a Christian with us uh, and, and you've joined us today, we're so glad you're here. Uh, especially in today's day, for someone to attend a function where you know you're going to hear, like, opinions you disagree with takes a lot of courage on your part. So thank you for, for being here. Um, but for those of us who are Christians, like, you know, the, the lingo that we use when it comes to this tension, those of you who aren't Christians, why I brought you up, you might not know that Christians talk this way, but Christians talk this way. We'll, we'll, we'll put the paradox in these words. What's the line between faith and foolishness? You ever heard anyone say that? Like, I've got to make a decision. Should I, is it, 
Is it faith to quit my job before I have another one lined up? Or is that foolishness? Do you see that question exposes, it uncovers the tension in our minds between wisdom on the one hand and courage on the other. We both say they're virtues we ought to have, and yet, for us, in practice, we grapple with it. You say, well, wisdom says find a job first. Courage says quit your job, create an opportunity. That's a problem for us, that we take these two virtues and we pit them against each other. And it's a problem for us because Paul says that the very way we live wisely is by making the most of every opportunity. The way we follow the book of Proverbs is to go for it, to go for Yahtzee. Now that's hard enough for us to grapple with. But this passage says there's even more in play. There's at least two other things in play. Besides trying to walk this tightrope, of wisdom and courage, there are two other forces at work. One of them is external. The end of verse 16 says that the days are evil. Don't read too much into that. He's just saying the times are bad. The times are bad. Remember where Paul is writing this letter from? He's in jail, okay? This is, this is letter from a Roman jail to a small struggling group of Christians in a major metropolitan city in the ancient world where people have already been persecuted for their faith. Times are bad. The times are still bad. And not just in those kinds of stark terms, but the times are bad because we're still broken. We're still sinners. People sin around us, and we have to deal with that. But even beyond that kind of evil, the times are bad because injury happens. In these times, cancer happens in these times. I just celebrated 10 years uh, since I was diagnosed with cancer. Praise God, I'm healed. Chemo, radiation, God's good hand. That rotted. Chemo rots. Not happy with chemo. And radiation continues to give me trouble. Times are bad. Financial loss happens. Job loss happens. The times are bad. So there is, while we're trying to walk this tightrope of wisdom and courage, there is this pull from the outside from our society saying, just forget it all, okay? Just forget it. Life, life stinks and then you die. So why are you trying to follow this tightrope when you could just enjoy your life? But that's not the only pull on us. Because while there's an external pull, there's also an internal pull. Verse 17 says, therefore do not be foolish. The word be here probably ought to be rendered become. Don't become foolish. Harold Hayner in his commentary on this passage writes that this indicates the possibility of Christians entering into the condition of becoming foolish. He goes on to say, the uncareful believer can easily be enticed to become foolish in the practical application of knowledge. See what he's saying? He's saying just because you've received this high calling doesn't mean you can't still be a fool. 
Knowing Jesus and having his spirit does not automatically bar you from ever being a fool. It doesn't make you wise. You can become a fool. So here's this external pull of the world on the one hand and the internal pull of our hearts on the other. And it's the pull of our hearts, I think, that, put, that pits wisdom and courage against each other. And it's not just our hearts and its sinfulness, but it's also our own natural tendencies, like our personalities. Like, are you a risk taker or are you risk averse? Well, whichever you are, you're probably more inclined to cover all of your actions under the word bold or under the word wise. And really, it's just a cover. And you're not actually dealing with what God has said and called you to be as a full human being. You see, we're called to walk in wisdom by being courageous, and the world pulls against us, and our own hearts pull against us, and it leaves us precisely in the opposite place as where verse 17 says we ought to be, understanding what the will of the Lord is. What does God want me to do? Right? I just don't know. Should I stay or should I go? Is it wise or is it courageous? If I can only have one or the other, which should I take? Or even worse, after a decision is made, right? And time passes and you were the person who sold the Apple stock. You say, did I do the right thing? And when you feel like you've been pulled by society away from your first love, and you feel like you've been pulled by your own heart from the growth in the areas where God wanted to strengthen you, it can leave you disillusioned. You know, when I was a kid, when I was a young believer, everything was crystal clear. Everything was black and white. Like, I'm going to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. And you get out into a little bit of walking by faith, and you realize, most of life is gray. There comes disillusionment with Christian teaching. Andy Minio expresses this well in his latest EP, which I could not recommend more highly. But in one of the songs, Clarity, he says, half my, I've spent half my adult life unlearning lies that I heard in a dumb sermon. truth hurts. And as a pastor, as a preacher, I wonder how many dumb sermons have I preached. But ultimately, it leads to disillusionment, not just with teachers or mentors that we've had, but with God himself. We come to a passage like this and say, you know, all my Christian life, I've wanted to be wise. I've wanted to understand his will. I've wanted to make the most of every opportunity. Now, here I am. And where am I? I was meant for more. So much more. So friends, I'm not just talking about a merely abstract paradox. I'm talking about something very real that some of you are walking through right now. Maybe many of you. Maybe most of you. And my concern is that this is the kind of problem that will lead some of you to be tempted to throw away your faith. 
And friends, I'm here to tell you that there's hope. I've come today. God sent me here today to talk to you who are disillusioned that there is hope. And the hard news is that the hope will not come until you realize that you're not the wise person. That you're not the courageous person that you long to be. The hope begins when you're willing to acknowledge that you're not the wise but the foolish. That you're not the courageous but the fearful. Because friends, the hope God holds out to you, whether you are a believer in Jesus or not, the hope that God holds out to you and to me is not ultimately, you can be wise and courageous. It's ultimately not the hope that God holds out for you. That, you might say, is a fringe benefit of the hope, but that's not the hope. The hope that God holds out to you is far more glorious because the hope that God holds out to you and me in our brokenness is that there is one who was always wise, who always lived as the wise one. There is someone who always made the most of every opportunity. There is someone who not only fully understood what the Lord's will was, but who fully did what the Lord's will was. And friends, what I'm saying is that the hope that God holds out to us who are broken, the hope that he has for us in our disillusionment is Jesus. He is our hope. He is, hear me, he is the wise one. He is the courageous one. The tension we feel finds its resolution in him. This week's Coffee Break Verses. There's so much I want to say here that I just put in there for you to reflect on Jesus the wise and Jesus the courageous because if that's ever going to be developed in our own hearts, you're going to have to find it in him first. He is the true image of God. And you see, friends, Jesus lived the wise and courageous life that you and I fail to live. And he did it to cover up our foolishness. He did it to cover up our fearfulness. He did it to earn these glorious robes of righteousness that he comes to us in our filthy garments and he just wraps his righteousness around us and says, yes, you are a fool. Yes, you are fearful. And I love you. And I lived, Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, for you, because I knew you couldn't. Here. He lived the life we failed to live. But that's not all. Because after Jesus lived the life we should have lived, he died the death that we should have died because of our foolishness and our fearfulness. Because of our refusal to trust God. Because of our refusal to follow him boldly. Because of our refusal to obey him completely. We should have been punished. But Paul writes at the beginning of Ephesians that in Jesus we have redemption. That is, we have release through his blood. That is, through what he did on the cross. And it results in the forgiveness of sins. See, Jesus died the death we should have died. But he did not stay in that grave. On the third day, Jesus rose again. 
triumphing over sin, triumphing over our foolishness and fearfulness, triumphing over hell and the grave and raised as Lord of all. This, friends, is the gospel. Jesus lived the life we failed to live. He died the death we should have died, and he rose again to give us new life and to usher in the recreation of all things. And this is the hope God holds out to you. If you would acknowledge, I'm the broken, not the whole. I'm the fool, not the wise. I'm the fearful, not the courageous. You say, well, but what difference does that make for me right now? Like, I've still got to make a decision tomorrow. I'm not sure how the gospel relates to my disillusionment, much less how it makes me both wise and courageous. So in conclusion, let me try to address that real quickly. And I'll do it by going back to that last phrase in verse 17. Understand what the Lord's will is. I, I don't know how you hear those words, how you interpret those words. But my like, initial response, whenever I hear those words, I want to say, understand what God wants me to do right now. That's the way I hear those words. It's true, I should know what God wants me to do right now. Okay. But friends, Paul's already told us what the Lord's will is. In the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, after he tells us that we have release through the cross, resulting in the forgiveness of sins, he tells us that God made known to us the mystery of his will. And the mystery of his will is this. That one day... God is going to unite everything under Christ. Every molecule, every atom is all going to be lined right back up to its rightful place with Christ as the risen Lord over all of it. And not just the physical universe. Every war is going to stop. And there will be unity. Every family squabble. Yeah. Will end. And there will be wholeness. Every tension and paradox will be restored and resolved and we will experience shalom. That is God's will. We understand what the Lord, what, what, what the Lord wants. We see it. The lights are turned on and we see it down here. So that means for us, God has this cosmic plan that's going to resolve Perfectly. And that cosmic plan has application to your microscopic life and every decision in it. Jesus speaks into your disillusionment and said, yes, you were made for so much more and I will bring it to pass. Do you understand that the gospel just absolutely liberates you? You, you are free whom the sun sets free will be free indeed. You know what that means? 
you can't mess this up. You can't. And if you did sell Apple in 1997, Jesus is bigger than Apple. God's got you. You can't see the end of the story. No. But he's told you, you can't see the end of your story, but he's told you the end of the story, right? And your story somehow will play a part in God bringing unity to everything in heaven on earth. So friends, when it comes to a decision, should I stay in my job or find one first? Something like that. Okay. I mean, read your Bible, pray, gather data, seek counsel, all that good stuff. But when you're at the end of that and you're like, what do I do? Whatever decision you make, God's got you. He's bigger than that decision. He's bigger than your employer. He's bigger than your financial wisdom. He's got you. The gospel has made you completely free. So go live. Let's bow together and pray. Father, thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you that Jesus lived the life we failed to live. That he died the death we should have died. That he rose again. Not only to give us new life, but to usher in the dawning of what will be. When everything in heaven and on earth will reach that final climactic chord and will resolve with a beauty and harmony that we can't even hope to understand yet. Help us living in the gray to grow in wisdom and courage. Oh God, we wanna be like Jesus. But we can't make ourselves like Jesus. Your spirit can. So this week, give us faith to believe. Give us light to see out of our disillusionment. Give us hope. And let us face this coming week with the wisdom and courage of Christ himself. For we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. Worship in response to what we just heard.